Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hi guys, welcome back to Medicus. Today we have an outstanding guest to discuss what some may deem a provocative subject, the topic of physician suicide and the systematic human rights violations that lead to these tragedies. But first, we'd like to introduce you to a new member of the Medicus squad, Aaron. Aaron, can you say a few words about yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Aaron Deng. Uh, I was born and raised in San Jose, California, and went to undergrad over at UC San Diego. And I am now an M1 over here at the Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. Super excited to be representing the Stritch School of Medicine on Medicus and to continue providing quality content for all of our listeners out there. Great to have you on board, Aaron. Okay, now back to our special guest. Today we are incredibly fortunate to interview Dr. Pamela Weibel, a family medicine physician and a fierce advocate for those in our profession who have lost their lives to suicide. Welcome to Medicus, Dr. Weibel. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I'm really happy to be here. Both my parents are physicians, so I actually grew up going to work with them in the 1970s, so I saw medicine in its heyday before all the third-party intrusion and the seven-minute office visit and all the things that we feel like we're funneled into against our will, assembly line medicine, big box clinics, which are just um, an assault on humanity, not only for our patients, but for everyone that's trying to provide beautiful, holistic real health care for people. And so as a result of me feeling like I was trapped myself in assembly line medicine, I actually became suicidal in 2004 and um, thought I was the only suicidal physician that ever lived on the whole planet. I had like, and I survived, obviously, here I am to, to live to share the tale. Um, but eight years later, I lost three gentlemen in my town, physicians to suicide, top of their field, guys. And then um, both the men that I dated in medical school died by suicide as successful physicians leaving wives and children behind. And all I can say is when I recognized that I knew 10 doctors that had died by suicide by my early 40s in this career, I thought, wow, this is totally being covered up or not being discussed or gee, like, it seems like we need to have a conversation about this. And since then, fast forward eight years, I've been pretty steadily writing and speaking about this. I now have a registry with over 1,500 doctor suicides and medical student suicides on there that I've investigated and, you know, like uh, organized into data points so that I understand a lot about this topic now. And I've run a suicide hotline for physicians and medical students. So I've spent like thousands of hours over eight years speaking to thousands of suicidal doctors and medical students. So I know that's kind of a long intro, but it gives people a sense. Oh, and I'm still practicing family medicine. So in between dealing with suicidal you know, doctors on these helpline calls, I am dealing with ingrown toenails, acne, and pap smears too. So that's fun. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. And, and we appreciate you sharing your, your story as well. I was going to kind of ask you, like, you know, what led you to pursue this topic? And it sounds like you, you talked a lot about your personal experiences with physician suicide in, in your personal life and, and in your, your relationships. And I guess kind of what I'm curious about is like, I mean, hearing that, like, I can see why, you know, why that is an important topic for you. But like, for me, I can easily see someone going, you know, in a completely opposite direction and just being like, nope, don't want anything to do with this. Like, so what kind of, I guess keeps you going or like kind of motivated you to really take action about this and do all of the work that you've described? 
So I was raised by a pathologist and a psychiatrist and I went to work with them as a child. So I'm used to being around dead adult bodies as a child, like sneaking into the morgue and hanging out with my dad. So I guess you could say I have a fearlessness about death only because unlike most people around dead bodies, well, probably most children aren't around dead bodies much, human bodies. But for me and my dad, it was like this little clubhouse fun thing that I got to do with my dad, go to work with him and hang out in the morgue. And so it was like, uh, as strange as it sounds, a joyful, cool daddy-daughter time, sacred time in the morgues. So I don't have any like hang-ups about death, okay? You know, he introduced me to his patients in the cooler and by name and leave me there like talking to them in the 1970s when you can bring your kids to work in the morgue with you, you know? Um, and then my mom took me to the state mental hospitals, you know, so I was around seriously mentally ill, like schizophrenic, paranoid, suicidal people, adults as a child. And that was also somehow cool and fun and more interesting than playing Barbies and playing. I, I couldn't go back home and play Barbies with my friends and wanted to play house. Anyway, whatever. You could see like I was way off the bell curve as a child. And also from a Jewish family that was all about, you know, I don't know if you hang out with Jewish people much, but they're like constantly philosophizing and trying to figure things out and existential questions. And on the one hand and on the other hand. So I guess by nature, I'm a truth speaker and I'm very curious and I was very precocious as a child into everything, you know, that I shouldn't be. Every taboo topic was open to me before elementary school. So I think because I didn't grow up in a religion that made us feel bad from the beginning and sort of thwarted asking deeper questions, I think some religions sort of thwart curiosity and individuality, you know. So I do believe that culturally and just sort of in my DNA, like I was born to do this. Let's put it that way. You know, I was raised in a Petri dish that sort of led me perfectly into the position to run a physician suicide helpline. Well, I'm very glad that you were raised to have a voice and to give voice to those who aren't here with us anymore. And, you know, as I was telling you before we started recording this episode, I really appreciate your human rights violation in medicine, A to Z guide book that you wrote. And I really do think that every single medical student, resident, and physician should have this at their bedside. So again, as the title you know, infers, you call what is happening in medicine human rights violations. And I was wondering if you could perhaps expand on exactly which human rights violations are happening. Yeah, so it was obviously pretty weird when I was in my early 40s and I knew 10 doctors that had died by suicide, including both the men that I dated in med school who had died, you know, leaving children and their wives behind as quote unquote successful physicians. And uh, just the sheer volume of people that I now know, uh, close, I have 1,500 or plus on my registry now, eight years into researching this, all sort of, um, you know, by name, age, date of death, location of death, year in their medical school training or specialty, and sort of the backstory behind why they died, and, and any news articles or other sort of conversations with family members and friends. And yeah, so I just became obviously pretty curious, like, is there a common theme here? Like, why do I know 10 people that have died by suicide in my profession? Like, I don't think there's a real estate agent that knows 10 other real estate agents that die by suicide, or what other profession could you, I have anesthesiologists actually writing me, telling me I've lost eight anesthesiologists 
anesthesiology colleagues to suicide. And it's like, well, that's just nuts. Like, okay, that's even beyond the bell curve that I'm on as a family doc. I don't know if eight family docs that have died, but there are lots of anesthesiologists that know a lot of colleagues that died by suicide. I just became curious, like, which are the specialties that are highest risk? Like, what's going on here? What is the common theme? These can't just be like 1,500 random cases, you know, blame the victim, bad egg, shouldn't be in medicine. What is happening? And so when I really think about putting it all together and all the conversations I've had and all the people who were near suicide losses but survived, it's quite obvious to me that the common theme is that this group of people has been forced to endure not just acute but chronic human rights violations from the first year of med school onward and just accelerating over time. I mean, uh, residency is just probably the pinnacle for many people of their human rights violations that they experience. But the problem is even after residency, you know, because you always hear like, it'll get better, it'll get better, stay with it. You have long-term health, mental health and physical health sequelae as a result of experiencing seven plus years of human rights violations or however many that you consider that you've experienced. Now, the reason why I wrote the book is that people tend in medicine to minimize their abuse because I think it's hard to wrap your head around the extent of the abuse. And so because we pick this field with idealistic notions and wanting to be humanitarians and help and serve others, and also, you know, it's kind of hard to reckon <laughs> like the reality of the suicide crisis in a profession that geez is here to help prevent suffering and death and you know like it's kind of it's hard to wrap your head around the truth of all this so i think there is a sense of sort of denial and wanting to look the other way in medicine for basically more than 100 years i mean we've known that we doctors have had a high rate of suicide since 1858 when it was first reported in the uk so we've been sort of actively shielding the truth from each other and ourselves for 160 years. And that's obviously not going to help if you're trying to deal with a medical crisis like diabetes or high blood pressure. If you don't say it out loud and run away from it for 160 years, it probably just only get worse, right? So I just kind of dug into it and started to not only just declare that it was human rights violations, but try to categorize the actual human rights violations that I was hearing over and over again. And I came up with like, I think a 41 or 42 um, in the book that I outlined. One chapter has two different ones in them because they're pretty similar. But I would say the one that we could all hands down agree with is sleep deprivation. You know, if somebody's up for, I don't know, 36 hour shifts, that can't be good. And that's actually a torture technique that's used in war to get people who are interrogated to reveal things that they wouldn't otherwise say, right? Because let's just face it, if you're up long enough, you're going to start having hallucinations, a psychotic break, go and have seizures or like want to have passive suicidal ideations of driving into a tree on their way home just so you can break your femur and lay in bed and, and rest for a while, right? So sleep deprivation is a big one. Overwork, you know, the fact that this goes hand in hand with sleep deprivation, that we're working the equivalent of three full-time jobs. I mean, even though we have an 80-hour work hour cap, they say, it's for many people, because I still get calls from people that are working 100 hours a week or more. And so, you know, 100, 120 hours a week, that's like three full-time jobs. 80 hours a week is two full-time jobs. You know, uh, pilots, by the way, and anyone in any state of the U.S. that has to follow labor laws like at Starbucks or PetSmart or whatever, you know, you're only allowed as a pilot, as a dog groomer or whatever to work eight or nine hours in a row. 
because beyond that planes crash and pets die during the grooming process you know what i mean because you miss the subtle panting of the cat or dog it's unhealthy right i think we can all agree working three full-time jobs is not healthy staying up you know the equivalent of 28 36 hour shifts isn't healthy uh beyond that you know bullying hazing you know hazing kills people in fraternities uh hazing is against the law racism sexism it goes on from there a water and food deprivation you know if you're up 120 hours a week working and the hospital cafeteria is closed and you haven't eaten in 12 hours and you're dehydrated and some of people have to be i don't know if you know this i just learned it in the last few years that doing these complex surgeries some human beings choose to be dehydrated before the surgery so they don't have to leave the you know neurosurgery to go to the bathroom so they either put a catheter in themselves or they just dehydrate purposefully before a surgery and that's something that's expected i guess as you know you're supposed to be dehydrated during these complex surgeries that can't be healthy how could that be healthy you know what i mean like if your own body ph is going into a realm that's not physiologically sustainable how are you doing brain surgery you know what i mean I guess I'll pause yeah. there because I think I gave enough examples. I mean, there's 42, but <laughs> we will definitely dive dive further into that. And I had no idea about the folks like surgeons actually dehydrating themselves intentionally. That is a buck wild practice to normalize. Including, I, by the way, wearing diapers, oh you know, so, so that, you know what I mean? And, and it's even worse in some countries, like my friend from China just told me like, that is the friggin' norm in med school there. And they are wearing diapers. They've got catheters inserted. It is hardcore and they're not eating, you know, and then they eat like a chocolate bar or something, you know, something to get sudden calories, but not a lot of bulk. It, it's just very weird what people do. I, I wanted to take a quick sidestep. And, and uh, before we dive into the specific human rights violations that you, you described, earlier before we started recording, you talked about one of the reasons you wrote the book was to kind of help give people language and vocabulary to kind of describe and understand what, what they're going through. And can you talk about your choice to use the term uh, human rights violation to describe what's going on as opposed to, you know, physician burnout or, or moral injury, which is kind of a more recently gain traction term, I, I guess, um, that's kind of been used. Can you talk about that choice? Yeah, I feel like the whole term burnout and moral injury, those are used to, they, they still minimize the depth of the problem. I mean, when you're in a profession that has been reported to have the highest suicide rate of any occupation, like it can't just be, you know, these nebulous terms that have no actual solutions attached to them, which is the other problem. You know what I mean? I think that we're drawn to this field because we want to actually help people and actually resolve the problems that they're having. And if we're afraid to say the true assessment out loud, like people used to be afraid of the word cancer, you know, that used to be sort of a taboo topic. Or if you watch TV from the 1950s, Lucille Ball and her husband weren't even sleeping in the same bed because I don't know, like sex, you couldn't share that. Like sex and, and, and pregnant women couldn't even be shown on television because that was sort of taboo, right? So if you think of where we've been and where we are now, I think sort of this seems to be the last taboo topic is psychiatry and psychology and suicidology and really mental health. You know, mental health is a thing and it it's affecting a lot of us, especially during a pandemic, right? And so if you understand the history of the word burnout, which I think most people don't, it's uh, actually a misnomer when it's applied to physicians because in its original form from the 1970s, it was a slang term used to describe end-stage drug addiction. 
So these were people just sort of dying in alleyways, you know, in urban America in the 1970s, you know, in Philly, right? And so what ended up happening, a guy named Herbert Freudenberger worked at a free clinic with drug addicted folks, and he started to feel like, exhausted just by like, it's really hard to take care of people with end-stage drug addiction. And he was fatigued and sort of felt depressed. And so he just basically adopted the slang term that they use for each other as burnouts, you know, IV injection, heroin in the arm and lit cigarette or marijuana or whatever, like, you know, burning in their mouth, right? So they're burnouts, right? That's what they call them. And so the people working with them, like the social workers and psychologists, started to adopt that terminology to applying it to themselves, which is really sort of compassion fatigue, I would say, is the, what they were trying to get at. And some of them might be, frankly, come on, if you have a whole difficult population of patients, you might become depressed, you might get into anxiety, you might feel like your work is futile, right? You might get completely exhausted. But, you know, I think the word burnout would happen as Freudenberger popularized it by doing all these little media interviews, writing a book. I don't know, it's called like burnout for perfectionists, burnout and women. And so because of mental health stigma, where people are constantly grasping for some word to replace the truth, because the truth is too difficult, the truth of saying, I'm an abusive marriage, I'm depressed, my husband is beating me, is too hard to say out loud. It's easier to say, I think I'm burned out being a housewife or something, you know what I mean? People are grasping at terms that are almost like terms of denial, I would say, or certainly they subvert the truth or they allow us to avoid the truth for 40 years. So this term burnout started to be applied to physicians, I think in 1981 in an American Medical Association newspaper article where they use the term physician burnout. And we've been talking about it for 40 years and going in reverse that's a clear indication that it's a misdiagnosis if we're making no progress, you know what I mean? And then I think as a result of the fact that if you talk about burnout, most medical students and residents' eyes glaze over, you know, because it's like, we're sick of it already, we're not getting anywhere. Then some people start using moral injury as like a more appropriate term. And it's probably like 5% closer to the truth than burnout, but it still doesn't nail the problem and it doesn't have a solution attached to it. And an example that I gave at a conference, it's like, well, just imagine if you're working in the ER and you call an orthopedist because there's a fracture, you know, that you need to deal with, right? If I just said, hey, I have a leg injury, can you help? They would be like, what do you mean leg, you know, like moral injury? Like, what kind of leg injury? What is it? Well, I don't know. It's like, I think they want to know it's a displaced femur. You know what I mean? Like, they want to know what it is. And so I think it's really important in medicine, precision accurate terminology. You can't help somebody if you don't have the specific issue. And so human rights violations subdivided into those 41 categories are the specific issues that not only are just sort of academic masturbation, let's just talk about it, talk about it, but actually they have real solutions, medical legal solutions attached to them, like sleep deprivation, pillow, bed, real easy, you know, racism, you know, there are laws that prevent this from happening in the workplace, that people are not, victims are not taking advantage of all the free resources that exist for help. So I know that was a long answer. I remember when I was at an academic medicine um, conference last year, I went to one of the um, sessions about burnout and the person presenting like immediately gave the addendum of, okay, before your eyes, you know, start rolling in. And I'm just like, why are we starting here? <laughs> like, this, this is not a good sort of 
I guess, vibe or, or mood to kind of start Not things a good off. Kickoff and, speech for a exciting yeah. conference. Yeah, and I almost feel like you know you say there's no actionable items with burnout, but I almost feel like they've created this term to be a term that places the blame on the physician, right? It is saying that the physician or medical student is inherently there's something wrong with them. And this is where we get these things like meditation and take long walks and reflect. And these solutions, oh my goodness, can I just tell you, over the past two years, I've heard much more than I would like to of these suggestions of things that we can do as students to improve our burnout. So I do, I do. Annoying. It's like, (laughs) like kindergartners. It's like, yeah, I learned how to do nap time and milk and cookies back in kindergarten. You've just taken like the cream of the crop, most, you know, competent people in the country and then put them in basically an unsustainable educational environment and then blamed them for not being able to keep their pH in balance and not have seizures and stuff like that. It's absolutely ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And one of the more strange talks I went to or I heard about, it was at the AMSA convention. There was actually somebody that came and their solution for burnout was swing dancing. And I was like, oh yeah, right. Like, guess what? If you had enough time, you would probably go out dancing. And that's something that you wouldn't have to tell people to do because you know what I mean? When you have enough time, you meditate and take walks and do stuff that's exactly. healthy for you. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, personally, I did do swing dancing before I got into medical school. It was very fun and very fulfilling, but like, I mean, there's extraneous variables right now that like prevent me from swing dancing beyond just time. But yeah, yeah it, it is hard. Like when sort of the underlying thing is, I have a lot of things to do and I'm really stressed out about it. It's like, oh, why don't you have more things to do to make you feel better about it? Like, Yeah, I know one thing that obviously I think is super important. I definitely think every single individual on this planet should have a therapist. But, you know, I really, really dislike it when it's suggested to us because I think the issue of time again comes up. You know, time and time again, I've talked to my classmates who have said, yes, I would love to go to a therapist, but there is no time. And so do you make that sacrifice of what you perceive to be very essential to your education, these endless hours of studying and doing whatever else, you know, it's demanded of you, or do you sacrifice your mental health? So those are, yeah, very, very difficult decisions to make. Fair. Unfair that you would have to decide between your mental health or your career. Absolutely. And one violation that you discuss that I found interesting was bullying. And I am curious as to why you think it's persisted from generation to generation. I definitely have heard that saying of, oh, well, you know, this is how I was treated and I turned out just fine. So this is how I should treat you. But to me, it, it almost seems like, and maybe this is just personal opinion, and perhaps it's because I haven't been hardened yet. It would seem to me that those being bullied would not want to inflict that same pain on someone else, especially being in the profession that we're in. So I'm curious why you think it's persisted. Well, it's definitely intergenerational wounding, and it's become sort of habitual in that, you know, this is the way we've always done it with this uh, pimping and just kind of continuing to insult people till they break. And one of the reasons that is people still don't understand is that when you have a group of people, 
if you're bullying them and one person starts crying or breaks down, that's exerting control over the group because nobody else in the group wants to be publicly humiliated or treated in that same fashion so that you now have, you know, you lost one but got control over five, the six residents kind of thing. And so it's basically teaching by terror and control by terror because it's not really teaching because I think we arrive wanting to learn. We're not slackers. So we don't need to be beat up to learn, but it is, it's, it's a, how to exert control and hierarchy and maintain this artificial power structure that I think is antiquated and doesn't serve anyone in medicine, even the patients, you know, the patients don't do well and they don't engage if they're stuck in a hierarchy, they need to be treated as a real whole people in a partnership and not a dictatorship. So the whole dictatorship model needs to end. But as far as why somebody who knows that it's probably not a good idea to bully somebody else continues to do it, it's because the main thing that this tracks back to is a lack of mental health care and personal insight and ability to grasp our wounds and to deal with them. And so there's this quote, hurt people hurt people. And I think just that happens inadvertently, not necessarily because the person who's hurting you is malicious, but they've been hurt themselves. They have not been able to get the help that they need so that inadvertently they're leaking this pain out on everyone else. And I recently spoke to a bunch of surgeons actually at Rush, you know, near Bayou, uh, they had lost a colleague to suicide a few years ago. And some of them are really concerned about how their attendings mistreat them and even sort of say belittling things even related to that one death in their department. And yet here's, here's the scene that I need to paint for you. When the, somebody's been injured and they're now an attending, you almost have to have more compassion for them than your med student colleagues or residents because you've only probably had a few years of bullying, but they've been tenured for 30 years and have had, you know, like 30 years of bullying. So they're really indoctrinated into this process. And what happens is you can only imagine if you've been bullied to the point that you're now disconnected from your feelings because that's the only way to survive is to go sort of numb and you haven't had therapy because I bet most surgeons don't have therapists, right? And then a bright-eyed young third-year medical student shows up for their first day of rotation wanting to be a surgeon and they're all smiley and happy. It's almost like your happiness and your joy and your dream of being a surgeon coming right up to this person who's so wounded, subconsciously, you are reminding them of the unwounded version of themselves. And so they have to make a decision right there subconsciously. I don't think they get all this, right? They're either going to nurture you as the lost part of themselves and their dreams that were lost, right? Or they're gonna try to squash you so they don't have to be reminded every day of the light and joy that you still have in your soul that they lost 30 years ago. Do you see how that works? Because really, if you think about it, since a lot of state medical licensing applications don't allow you to get mental health care without potentially having it be discoverable, a lot of these people are afraid to go and they don't have time to go working 100 hours a week. There's a lot of obstacles, right? But the point is, they're now you're attending. They have 30 years of trauma, including watching pediatric you know, patients die on in the OR and being screamed at by their attendings for, right? So they have like decades of trauma that they've, vicarious trauma and real trauma that they've sustained, they haven't been able to deal with. And so they really have like two choices. To nurture you, they would have to reckon with what their own lost dreams. And I feel like they probably realize if they started crying 
and they'd have to cry because it's sad. They lost themselves. You were them 30 years ago, right? But that would be like a tsunami of tears. And when could you do that at work when you have to go see the next patient? And when could you even, like, I think it just scares the crap out of people to think about how much contained pain they have. And if they were to let it out, who would help them do this so they don't completely crack open and die from the pain? You know what I mean? So it's easier just to stay numb and continue the process of bullying. I know that's a long answer, but... Was that any new information for anyone? Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, all of that was new. I had no idea. And it makes total and complete sense the way that you frame it. You know, I was actually talking to a friend of mine recently who is now in clinical rotations. And she was just saying how her attending seems to really dislike her because she's so like bubbly and upbeat and happy. And I was like, this is very weird. I don't know why anyone would dislike a happy person. But you know, now that you say it, this makes complete sense. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. I never thought of it in those terms. And I do think you're right. You know, if they started unpacking, there's lack of time. And I feel like you could unpack for months at a time once you begin and you probably wouldn't be able to stop crying thinking of the horrors that you've endured. And along the same line that when I talk about doctor suicides to people, especially Like I wanted to find out more about, I know 14 doctors that died by suicide in my town starting back into the 1960s in Eugene, Oregon. And in order to sort of discover more of the details about some of those cases that were like, quite frankly, before I was even born, right? I had to find some retired doctors in town who remembered them. So I was interviewing a lot of doctors who were like in their 70s and 80s and retired. And every time I started talking to them about suicides, which was not a thing that they ever really discussed back then, they would tell me what they remember. And then all it it almost most of the time they would start remembering more and more cases that would bubble up to the surface. So this one guy I talked to told me all about the person that I called him to interview him about. And then the next day he called me back and he goes, Hey Pamela, I just want to let you know, after I got off the phone with you, I thought of four more from Eugene, Oregon, and I want to tell you about them. And so I call that like suicide amnesia because I feel like there's a little trauma amnesia going on. And by looking at the bubbly smiley face, like that's reminding them of them. And then all these sort of amnesia episode, you'd rather keep it down is bubbling up to the surface, which obviously is easier for a retired orthopedic surgeon to have a suicide amnesia moment and call me than a surgeon that's currently working a hundred hours a week to start remembering things that they're trying not to remember. And I would bet this happens with firefighters and police officers and other sorts of professions. And I don't know if they have support services that work for them or not, but I can tell you we're not getting the best service from our firefighters or police officers if they're going to work completely discombobulated from their trauma that they've unprocessed from the weeks or years before. I mean, just think about how amazing healthcare and all these professions could be if we weren't carrying around all this trauma. There's this button I really like that says um, emotional baggage limited to two carry-ons. And I'm like, okay, I don't know. I think we show up at med school with two carry-ons and then we have 10. And then by third year, we have 20. And I don't know, when is it time to unzip and unload? Like there's no, there's no time. You know what I mean? How much emotional baggage does your attending have that's being mean to your bubbly friend? I feel like that's a a lot of extra airline uh, charges as well on that. But I think the biggest thing that I got from that is that for a lot of medical students, we don't really have a time to unpack. And I don't think we ever feel that time because I think for a lot of people, we move into different areas of the world, different areas of the country. We move away from friends and family support systems. And the idea is 
uh, okay, it'll be good in seven years from now when I'm going to be an attending. And then even then, you're not sure you're going to get a job in the place you want to live and be with family and friends. And so you start getting into that cycle of when are you ever going to have that impacting? And I think that's something all medical students have grappled with, like myself, who've had to move you know, away from that support system into a, into a new, entirely new environment. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. So I do private retreats now because uh, I used to only do two retreats a year. I don't know if you've heard like where I'd get like 30 to 50 people, including med students, residents and doctors together for like four days in the woods and running around Oregon. Yeah, except our retreat center burned down in the forest fire, which is the saddest thing ever because that's where I've been leaving these retreats for like 20 years. So I suddenly started to have to do retreats in lots of other places. And what I decided because I run the suicide helpline and obviously when people are calling me, they're in various states of disillusionment. And I you know, and some of them are like, oh, I wish I could come to a retreat. And I used to be like, well, the next one's in May, you know, like six months from now. And, you know, like that doesn't really help somebody who's suffering right now. And some of them are on leaves of absence from med school and stuff like that. And like they could really need, they need help now. So now I just do retreats every single week. Whenever anyone needs a retreat, they fly here and I literally spend time with them. We get the spa suite at this beautiful hotel in my town and I spend two straight days with them helping them with their leave of absence from med school helping them with like I just had a psychiatrist here for five days from Wisconsin who I spent two whole days with him almost straight through either he was with me or doing activities that I had assigned him point is I spent like a really intense two straight days with him plus a day before helping him prepare and then a debriefing session afterwards that was like an hour and a half and he told me at the end that I'm the person that knows him the best in the whole world and I was like wow that's a pretty dramatic statement and he, even though he'd been in therapy and been trying to get help, like there's only so much progress you can make an hour at a time. If you think about it, we all have like 20 years of whatever happened to us before med school, probably or more, right? And then if you think like, okay, now I'm having trouble sleeping and I'm being bullied at work and now I'm going to go try to get therapy somehow if it's possible, that's only like an hour a week, maybe, you know what I mean? And that's not nearly as great as like, I sort of set up an inpatient scenario where I like lock somebody into a spot, you know, that's not discoverable. It's not on the electronic medical record. You know what I mean? Like it's really, cause it's a retreat. And so, yeah, it's super cool. But I think every doctor should have a personal retreat that's guided by somebody that knows what they're doing to help them uncover number one, their life's purpose. I think a lot of people are going into specialties for the wrong reason. They're not getting the mentorship they need. What I actually offered a med school recently, because I think they need to do this, this would be the right, if I was in charge of medical education, this is what I would do. Mandatory, come to med school two or three days early and come to a retreat with your class. You have to do a three-day retreat, which is not painful, but it's remembering what your soul's purpose is. What's your reason for being here? How old were you when you decided to be a doctor? What are your motivations? You know what I mean? Like there's all these reasons that people need to understand why they're in med school and what their motivations are. So they have a good experience in med school and they pick the right specialty because I think a lot of people end up in these what I call cul-de-sac specialties where there's no way out. They feel trapped and they pick the wrong one. So yeah, our school actually has, they call it a jump retreat. It's not mandatory. And I haven't gone, like I didn't go my first year, but I kind of really wish I did because the people that went seem to have really powerful reflective experiences. And I think sometimes you don't know what's best for you until you're mandated to do it. And um, it would be great. And I think not even, 
obviously it'd be great, you know, to do it in the beginning of medical school, but perhaps even, you know, after your second year, midway through to make sure that you still can reflect back and find gratitude and joy and remember, you know, why you got into medicine in the first place. Yeah, it should be before every year. And then I call them booster retreats that could be offered like at summer break, winter break, if there's breaks, Christmas, like instead of just opening Christmas presents with your family, maybe it'd be better to unpack some of this stuff, you know, so that you feel like you're actually thinking clearly before your next rotation. Thank you for that. I know that one thing we were talking about a little bit earlier were about how this seems to be like a taboo topic, uh, the idea of these human rights violations and the idea of physician suicide, especially for those from the uh, older generations who just really never talked about it. And I can definitely understand for a lot of victims of these violations, they just don't feel comfortable speaking up. And obviously, I hope and we all hope in this profession that colleagues would report unacceptable behavior, bullying, etc. But obviously, it's still something that's very universal and something that seems to still be throughout our, our medical system. So do you have any ways to help ease that anxiety for some maybe whistleblowers? Are there any repercussions for whistleblowers or any legal protections that you've noticed for individuals who are trying to make an impact in this system and and change the uh, environment? Well, I mean, the best thing to do is just to come together as a group, have a cohesive group of residents or whoever's on that rotation. Like if everyone speaks up together, you're much more protected than being singled out as the one that's troublemaker that's telling the truth, right? So I think that's why it's so important to stay connected to one another. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term trauma bonds. That's super important. But I think most people in med school don't develop normal relationships with each other. You're bonded over trauma, basically. You know, like if you think about normal relationships outside of medical school, your spouse or whatever, assuming they're not in medicine, like you probably went out to dinner and went to the movies and went swing dancing and did normal stuff and had a uh, relationship evolve slowly over time doing normal things, right? But in medicine, because of the time crunch and the rotations and the schedules, you literally are meeting people on your rotation for the first time, maybe, right? Your interns and co-residents or classmates that you haven't really necessarily spent a lot of time with in your first two years, but now you're on OBGYN together. And now you've just literally delivered a stillborn or witnessed a maternal death together. And so now you're seriously bonded, but not bonded over swing dancing dinner or the movies, you're bonded over a maternal death. And that won't leave you for the rest of your life. Every time you think about that person, that person thinks about you, you're re-traumatized by the relationship, which is a really sort of sick way of developing relationships with people. It probably also happens in the police department and fire department and other places, but I think we're not really getting help to understand how to develop normal relationships with each other, which is one of the cool things that I noticed at these retreats that I did pretty much universally. Like most people there were like, I don't like doctors. I never hang out with doctors. Doctors aren't my friends or, you know, and why is that? Well, it's not because there's something wrong with doctors and you wouldn't really want to be friends with them. It's because all your trauma bonds are with doctors and they're all so abused that it just reminds you of struggle and pain and death and suffering. And so it'd be much more fun to have friends be musicians or authors or, you know what I mean? So, and I think it's really sad that I just realized actually in my forties that doctors are the coolest people to be friends with, but they have to be doctors that are like healing from their trauma because it's hard to have all your friends be so traumatized because then you'll just keep getting traumatized. 
and they're not very happy anyway if they're traumatized. So having all your friends be depressed is also depressing. You know what I mean? So I just think it's really sad that we're in a situation where we're not allowed as gifted, amazing humanitarians that just want to serve and help others. We're not literally allowed with the structure of medical education to develop normal relationships with each other that we can have as sustaining lifelines throughout our years in this profession. Instead, we sort of run away for each other, from each other or distrust each other or are reminded of traumatic circumstances. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm just thinking of my medical school relationships. And I do have a couple close friends, but I feel like a lot of my other relationships with medical students are very much over just shared grievances. I mean, sure, yeah, you'll talk about like the weather, but there's nothing else that's enjoyable. It's more like you get together and you just have a bitch fest, pardon yeah. my language, you know? And if you ever go to like a doctor's event or a CME, they're all just bitching together because that's what they're used to. Like everyone just comes together and complains. And so how does hanging out with a bunch of whiners, and it's not even with a solution in mind, they're just complaining and feeling disempowered. So it's like complaining and disempowerment, terrible combination. But I have to say, like, if we were in the right situation and we could be groomed in a healthy, safe environment, we would naturally go swing dancing with each other and have healthy relationships. It's just, there's no time for it. And even when you have sort of normal, non-traumatic maybe relationships with friends, you're still brought together over test anxiety and other stuff, which is still, it's not as traumatizing as maybe a maternal death, but it's still like your relationships were built over sort of grasping each other's hands and life rafts together and they all have holes in the life rafts. So they're all sort of sinking together. But if we all hold hands, maybe we can stay afloat. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of feeling. And, and the other thing to answer your question, uh, Aaron, there are whistleblower protection laws. So if you felt like you had to do it your, yourself, there are instructions in the human rights violation book on how to get an attorney and get protection from retaliation, which actually has saved a lot of people from being terminated from residency programs when they have toxic program directors because you have now legal protection. Just know that you're protected as a group, but you're also protected by agencies as a group and singularly if you were to go out and advocate for yourself. Yeah, and I definitely um, relate to that. And on some level, I think I've seen a lot of kind of friendships in, in, in medical school particularly have a hard time because it can get isolating at times because there are periods where your stress and everyone else's stress is going up at the same time, right? Because you're all preparing for the exam around the same time. And some folks, you know, different folks like to uh, cope with stress in different ways. And and I think a lot of folks either isolate themselves or don't want to be around, you know, other stressed out people, right? Which is perfectly valid. But the result you know, on a systemic level, I've seen is like often, you know, pre-exam weeks, like it's kind of a kind of a ghost town. And everyone's like, you can kind of feel it in the air. And it's, um, and it's very tense. And I don't think anyone's doing it on purpose or, or trying to push people away. But like, just kind of seeing that cycle play out over and over again has been troubling for me, I guess. To piggyback off of that as well, I think one thing that I've seen with COVID, with a lot of people being at home is that not only is it isolating from their own classmates, but they're seeing that it's isolating from, you know, the family members because they just don't understand what you're going through. A lot of people have expressed that that sentiment where they're living at home, you know, they're surrounded by family who want to talk, want to do healthy things with their life, which, you know, for a lot of med students, they don't have the time to. And I think that's really sad that not only is it isolating with medical students, as we discussed, but I, I know that some people have felt 
a little bit isolated from their families because they have to tell their families, no, like I need time to study, I need time to watch lecture, I need time to do X, Y, and Z in the limited 24 hours of the day that I have. I also wanted to bring up a lot of kind of what we've been touching on have been more systemic, like culturally ingrained issues, right? Like you, you were talking about kind of this perpetuated cycle of bullying by generation and food and sleep deprivation and um, just harassment. And I kind of seen this in my own life on some level, like uh, one of the things that stood out to me while reading your book was um, you had a chapter on this term of uh, karoshi, which is a Japanese term, and it translates to um, death by overwork and karojishi, which is suicide by overwork. And, you know, to have that happen often enough that, that it has uh, its own kind of vocabulary is shocking. But I, I'm not Japanese, but like I, I grew up Korean American, and I, I've seen similar things. I don't think it's like maliciously intended, but there were a lot of kind of proverbs and like just advice given to me growing up as a kid that really idealized it and kind of pedestalized hard work, like not quite the pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But you know, I, my, my mom would tell me stories about, you know, how my uncle or, or like someone studied so hard and so long that their nose would bleed. And like, that's like a frequent thing that bring that comes up as just kind of a shorthand for they were working really hard, and you should celebrate them. And I think looking back on it, I'm just like, that's not a thing to celebrate. Like, it's not, that's not good. Your body is literally showing you like, hey, something's wrong. Please stop. Go to sleep. But I can see how those kinds of things can pervade. And, and, you know, I think my parents have grown in their views as well, especially, you know, with a lot of news on physician suicide rates. And as I've gone into this field, I've been fortunate enough that they've kind of been more open to talking to me about, you know, my own pursuit of mental health care and, and seeking therapy and whatnot. And, and I think they've been more accommodating of it. But yeah, like this kind of a long winded intro to what are some systemic and cultural shifts that you would like to see in, in medical education? Like you mentioned bringing more retreats, but more, what would you want to see change on like a bigger level? Yeah, they say that 90% of what you learn in medical school, you're going to forget. So why are we shoving all this 90% of information into people if they could easily look it up on, online? You know, like if they can, if you, I think we just need the overall concepts and we need to be recognized as like very smart people that, yeah, we can do the memorization, memorization regurgitation cycle, but is that an effective way to keep people living for four plus years? It's just, it's counterproductive. So we need to honor the physiology of, and the innate abilities of our students. And I personally believe that we should have medical students design their own medical schools. You know, that's what I did with my clinics. If you're familiar with, I help patients design their own clinics and communities design their own clinics through town hall meetings. And so I believe in the end user being in charge of designing the system that's going to work for them. That is sort of the pure solution for a failed top-down hierarchy, antiquated medical education model. Now that's really hard for some people in administration and some leadership people to understand how to manifest, but it works really well. Like I've helped residency programs come in and done town hall meetings and helped the residents express what they have not expressed, which are simple win-win, no-cost solutions that would dramatically change their life as residents. And the residency director was like furiously taking notes like, oh, I'd never heard about any of this stuff before. You know, like, so I feel like there needs to be some sort of an outside person come in and facilitate real communication happening between the leaders and the learners. Like there's a definite lack of communication and transparency or something, even at the best medical schools where you've got sort of an empowered leadership and a disempowered learner, and there's not a flow of communication and working together in a way that really creates an ideal educational environment. So that's what I think needs to happen next. But it takes a progressive med school to, to do that. 
but it's not hard. Like once you have somebody progressive in leadership that wants to do that, it can be done very easily. One other thing I think culturally needs to change is there are some people who are like, oh man, the whole thing of using your children as trophy children has to stop. There's a woman who was really active in the Do No Harm film. I don't know if you saw the Do No Harm film. She had a baby recently and she understands physician suicide, like she's in the film. And she friggin' posted the baby's picture online, hashtag future doctor. And I was like, what? Wait. Don't you know this is a problem? You just did it again. You know what I mean? I don't know what the thing is. It's terrible. It's like, no, don't do that to your kids. Don't even think hashtag it. Just put them in a normal shirt. Hi, I'm a baby. I deserve a childhood, not future doctor. That's a problem. Yeah, that's really ridiculous. Okay. And I don't think he even gets it. I never even brought it up to her. I should call it, you know, whatever. Okay, so that's a problem. And then another thing is in the obituaries that I read, I literally just read a medical student's obituary before I got on with you because somebody sent it to me. His name is Jack. His parents were very honest in the obituary and wrote that he took his own life. He's going to get an honorary diploma, you know, for whatever that's worth. But they wrote about him as being this happy person his whole life. They call them Happy Jack, Happy Jack, throughout the obituary, Happy Jack. And it's like, well, that's part of the problem here. You have somebody who really was not able to be congruent with their facial expressions. And now that is, and I'm not gonna be discourteous to his family because they were honest in the obituary, that's a huge move, but there's something to unpack there around Happy Jack, you know what I mean? And like, he must not have been as happy as you thought he was, right? And I don't know if you've seen my article, Why Happy Doctors Die by Suicide, but that's a really good one. Um, The other thing that I've seen in obituaries is they're actually celebrating the terrible, but good, excessive work ethic that the person had that actually killed them. You know what I mean? So it's like, Your daughter died. This is the obituary. This is the beautiful picture. And you're celebrating that she delivered 13 babies on a shift and delivered, you know, like to be glorifying the abusive work ethic that the person had that actually killed them in the obituary. I just think that's, I don't think people are making the connection. I think people are still missing the reason why their loved one has died even in the obituary. So I think we have some education to do around mental health, around parenting and not forcing your values on your child beyond just kind of giving them a safe environment to thrive and have their soul develop. So one of the reasons why the psychiatrist told me he thinks I'm the person at the, at the, after this retreat that knows him the best in the world. Yes, I was a sacred witness for two days and I watched your behavior in great detail, including how you ate your timing, ways you respond. I mean, I literally, it was like a 24 hour friggin' office visit. You know what I mean? Like studying somebody, which is to me really fun. Like I get to like really dive deep, right? It could be nerve wracking for some people to have them <laughs> analyzed for 48 hours, you know? Um, but the thing that's so unique about why we were able to make so much progress is not only was I a sacred witness, and of course he was ready for the experience. He was very intentional about coming here to Oregon and having this experience. So it wasn't like forced, like you have to go to a retreat or an orientation or whatever, right? And, you know, and I have the skills from all these decades of dealing with doctors, right? Including my own parents. I had to master physician psychology to survive my childhood with two physician parents, let's just face it. And, uh, but the thing is, I was a sacred witness, which is, I think, a really good way to frame what you do with your patients. Like you're not there to dictate. You're not there to do anything other than be a sacred witness and give them your best guidance. But the best way to do that 
And the way that made this so effective is that I was unattached to the outcome. Like I gave him targeted, hard to hear, this is my best advice for you and your life and your career. But you know what? If you do this, great. If you don't, I'm not going to cry. I mean, I'm giving you my best advice, but I'm unattached to the outcome. And let me just tell you, there's very few other people. This was, this is the thing I actually told him. There's very, I think there's nobody in your life that has been a sacred witness for you. And he's close to 50 years old. I don't think anyone else has been a sacred witness for you and has been unattached to the outcome because your parents, they could be, they could be at times like really good listeners, a sacred witness, but they're attached to the outcome that you're always their kid and you're always going to behave a certain way and show up at family gatherings and do what they want you to do. You know what I mean? They are attached to an outcome. You know, he has children and it's like, well, your children could be all about you reaching your soul's potential in life, but not if it means that you're thwarting their parent child relationship in any way you know what I mean so they're attached to an outcome even his soccer coach like he had a really good that was the closest he could come to of somebody who was a real coach to him in his lifetime right but his soccer coach you know was really attached to his performance of soccer and an outcome for the season for the team so he wasn't really just about your soul's purpose as an individual living this life as a unique entity unattached to anyone else's tethered outcome for you you know what I mean? And I think that's very unique. I know I might be going on a tangent here, but I think culturally this is what has to shift is that there's too much trophy children. There's too much of medical schools needing a certain outcome with scores with people without really investing in their soul's purpose and what's right for them. There's just way too much pressure exogenously from parents, from schools, from you know religions, from everywhere. And so what ends up happening is you turn 50 years old one day and you're like, whose life did I just live? Whose career did I just practice? Like this wasn't my beloved career. I was just doing what the hospital told me to do or what the clinic's expectations were. You know what I mean? And that is a recipe for a totally unfulfilled life where you are thwarting your soul's purpose on this planet. And so that's sort of what I'm trying to do for people when I'm with them is I try to like get them reattached to their soul and get them to be empowered enough to say no to these other exogenous forces that are trying to thwart their ability to be the person they were born to be in this world. You know, yeah. but in a respectful way. I mean, you don't want to tell your parents to screw off. I never want to see you again. <laughs> you a trophy sure. child. I didn't want to be that, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, an incredible power to feeling truly seen and heard as who you are and, and how you see yourself and how, kind of having that, you know, as you mentioned, like be congruent with how others or how, or how someone like a, a sacred witness might actually perceive you and have that be reflected as I guess you see your own truth. So I, yeah, I, I think there, yeah, that makes some perfect sense to me. I mean, that was my long winded answer on what needs to change culturally. Yeah. Basically no, stop the top down mandates and empower the end user and allow their soul to come forward without outcomes that are based on other people's needs because you'll get the best out of the person we all have something amazing i believe pre-zygotically we had this amazing potential you know like a little seed that grows into a giant redwood tree we all have that potential but it's thwarted at so many points in our life and some people like never get back to who they really are yeah no definitely i was curious you know when you talked about the obituaries that you were reading and I mean, you've run the suicide hotline for what, eight years now, right? And obviously you've spoken to a lot of physicians on the brink, as well as family members who've lost loved ones. 
And I was curious what that experience has been like for you, especially having coped with suicidal thoughts in the past and what that experience has been like for you. Well, it was terrible at the beginning because I felt like I had stumbled upon this Pandora's box thing that nobody had opened. So I was literally, I felt like I was the first little curious child to open this coffin and find like all my friends in there. You know, you just have to imagine how strange it is to open up a coffin and find all your dead friends that were literally your tribe. These are my tribe of people. If we weren't all connected with trauma bonds, I would feel like most of us would consider this our tribe, you know, but because we're all so damaged and traumatized and have time to swing dance, you know, we're not feeling very tribal together. But yeah, I found all my dead friends and guess what? Nobody wanted to hear about it. Yeah. So I was like, okay, now I'm struggling with the fact that, okay, it wasn't just my suicidal thoughts. It was rampant and there's a lot of deaths in front of me and the media doesn't want to cover it. And I'm being threatened by medical institutions and other doctors to shut up. And like, I'm being, I was not being supported in the fact that I discovered the Pandora's box with all the dead friends. I was being told to keep it to myself. You know what I mean? For years, I couldn't get our local newspaper to report on the three doctors that died by suicide because they said if the family doesn't want in the obituary we won't put it it's like this is not an individual situation it's not an isolated case this is an occupational hazard there are like 10,000 people in Eugene Oregon without doctors this is a public health crisis locally and you're not going to report that no they're not going to report it because their policy of the paper is to censor this topic okay same thing with the tv station like I went to the TV station, they wouldn't report it either. The reporter took a lot of notes, but her boss nixed the story. And five years later, she had me in her Rolodex and brought me out during a mental health week for Lane County. But I think I was just in there for 15 seconds saying, yeah, it happens to doctors too. And that was it. There was no depth of reporting, which is terrible when you're a truth speaker to feel like you're actively being censored. That really pisses me off more than anything. So not only was I, because I'm an empath, so I'm feeling all the emotions, I'm crying, and I'm looking at all the dead pictures of the people, but then I'm also infuriated with the media and with medical institutions, because that's when I'm feeling like, oh, when I was researching this, oh, you're censoring me and you've censored the topic for 160 years? Really? This is really what's happening? Like, you're really going to keep trying to do this for another 160 years? How much longer do you want to try to censor this? But it's just, I think, anger. So much anger and pain and sadness. And I was so alone. So who else could I talk about this? The parents that lost their dead children. Well, they're really upset too because... They didn't even know they were sending their kids into a profession. They didn't know when they put the hashtag future doctor that they were sending their kids into a profession where their kid was going to die. And believe me, when I fill them in that this has been going on for 160 years, then they're furious too. So what are we going to do with all the anger? I don't know. Luckily, I live in Oregon. I was walking in the woods. I was taking long baths. You know, it's very, it was terrible. I have to say how terrible it was. I don't think this really turned around for several years, including I was getting angry letters in town from some of the surviving wives uh, because I was starting to write about this, not outing their spouses by name, but I wrote an op-ed about a local pediatrician shot himself in the head and this one, you know, like, and people, I guess, sort of know who I was talking about. And then the wives are sending me angry letters. How dare you? Because when is it a convenient time to actually start talking about this? 
there will be a recent family that lost a loved one physician to suicide. So if it's inconvenient for you now and you're going to lash out at me, when are we going to talk about this? So luckily I've fixed skin and none of that bothers me, but I just can tell you the predominant feeling was anger and terrible sadness. As the um, response from institutions and medical education, and I imagine like hospital systems as well, changed at all uh, over time? You know, you mentioned it was very alienating early on, but what's that response been more recently? Oh, it's better. I mean, sometimes they invite me to come speak on physician suicide for grand rounds or, you know, whatever, a keynote at the med school. But even better than that is that they don't send out those stupid, automated, heartless emails. They actually send out emails that make sense. We're sorry to announce that there's been the death of a third year medical student by suicide this weekend. You know, they actually say it, they write it down. They have some sort of postvention, which is what you're supposed to do within 24 to 72 hours of a suicide is you have an institutional postvention. That's not just automated email responder, heartless. You know what I mean? It's like real people coming together, crying, holding hands, you know, processing what just happened, talking about it. I mean, I had a hospital in Washington that just lost an emergency physician and they brought me in virtually because of COVID for like six hours of debriefing sessions with their emergency room staff. But not just the emergency room staff where this doctor worked, you know, and twice in one day, because let's just face it, some people are working and they can't come to the debrief sessions. So it's really important to offer more than one opportunity, right? And then they did another one for all the physicians in the whole hospital. And then another one for the entire staff of the whole hospital, which that's what should be happening because a physician who dies leaves behind two to 3,000 patients who now don't know what happened to their doctor. They leave behind not just the staff of the emergency department, but the cafeteria workers and the people who are used to seeing your face every day. Like Everyone is grieving when they find out and everyone deserves to be able to put a flower by a place in the hospital that's going to be your little memory bench or something. You know, it's just important to allow the living to grieve because if you don't, it increases our risk of suicide because we see that this is an option for us when it's not talked about. It leaves everyone in a state of confusion. And so postvention, it's really important. You might read about that if you're not familiar with the term postvention, but that's something like every residency, medical school, hospital should have a postvention plan in place for a suicide, which could just be the suicide of a patient in a psych ward. You've got to have a response, a debriefing. It shouldn't be that like after the suicide, you're Googling around and trying to figure out what to do when you stumble on Pamela Weibel and just she happens to not be busy and she could do six hours. If we have the highest suicide rate of any profession, there needs to be a plan in place of this is what we're going to do in case this happens. So you're not fumbling around, which again requires people not to be in denial. And the more we're able to just really talk about this, the more people can heal and probably the less suicides will happen because you're not isolated. I think suicides happen when you're completely untethered to any other human beings on the planet. Because I don't think most people want to just live a life of going through the motions of eating, wiping their butt, doing the laundry, you know, like there's the going through the motions of living and then there's actually living your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? And in order to be like a real live whole human being, you need 
whole human, spiritual, emotional, physical connections with other people, which is why COVID is such a disaster for the isolation piece. But you know, if you're alone and studying incessantly and starting to go psychotic from sleep deprivation and you don't have a clear connection with anyone else on the planet or your girlfriend just broke up with you or whatever, it is high risk. You know, another time that's really high risk I want to share is anyone that falls off the usual trajectory of their medical education, like they get held back. Or they have to repeat a year, they have to repeat a class, they don't graduate on time with their class. That is, I just need people to understand that's a high risk time for suicides. Like if there's somebody that is not graduating with your class and they're sitting alone in their apartment with their student loan paperwork and they're on a leave of absence and they're having to like in one week know that all their classmates are graduating and not them, there are a lot of suicides happen then. And one that I'll never forget in Tulsa, like he didn't leave a suicide note, but he shot himself in the head right over his student loan paperwork because his loans were coming due and he wasn't graduating on time and he was held back. And it didn't matter that he had such a loving family living 20 miles away. Like he was right near his family. It was pre-COVID times. He had lots of family support, but he felt such a sense of failure and inability to handle the debt load that he had and an unclear path forward in his possible profession. You know what I mean? And with the easy access to firearms in certain parts of the country or all parts of the country, right? Like that's just a terrible recipe. So please look out for people like, I just told a dean of a med school this, we need a graceful off ramp for people who want to part ways with their medical education, you know, where they don't feel like a failure and they're allowed to make another career choice and they get help because they're young. Like they don't know all the things that I know as a 52 year old on how you could reroute your career, including how you can get your student loans paid off. I just think that's really important to know that you could get your student loans forgiven if you work for a nonprofit and it doesn't even have to be in medicine. You could work at the YMCA teaching swimming and your loans will be paid off because all you need is a job at a nonprofit or a government institution. And after 10 years, you can get public service loan forgiveness. It doesn't even have to be in medicine. You could be a park ranger. I just think there's a lot of support financial, emotional, cultural, educational support that medical trainees need that they're not getting. So they're likely to end up feeling trapped or thwarted or isolated and then make an impulsive, terrible decision. I mean, to be honest, my boyfriend is also a, he's a resident, actually. He's an intern. Intern years awful. Bad, bad year. <laughs> but we've definitely discussed, we do not want our children to go into medicine. It will be like, Literally, can you please think of anything else that you want to do with your life? Which is so sad because we go into, you know, we went into this profession passionate about it. But then when you reflect back, that's not something you want to inflict on a loved one. There are kids that are told by their parents who are physicians not to go into medicine, like my parents told me. Now, mm -hmm. I just knew in my heart and soul that this was the destiny for me and it mm -hmm. was the right profession. So that's sort of inconsequential for me, but there are a lot of people who are told by their physician parents not to go into medicine and they go into medicine because their parents never tell them why. My parents never told me why they were saying mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. They didn't, like if they would have said, don't go into medicine because there's a high risk for suicide and PTSD and you're a sensitive person and we think that it could impact your soul as like a loving, sensitive woman. If there was mm -hmm. a reason for it, the problem is that physician parents will tell their kids not to go into medicine and they don't give them any reason. Mm -hmm. They just they don't do it. Now, in the mind of a 
young person, they will likely think, oh, my parents don't think I'm smart enough. Or, oh, my parents don't think I can do it, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I have the capacity to do it. And so there's a subset of pre-med students who go into medicine to prove that they're smart enough to their parents, which is a recipe for friggin' disaster. Right. That is the only reason you're doing it is for parental love and acceptance so they can see that you're smart enough. Okay. Yeah. So I definitely recommend that we use the truth all around. If you're mm-hmm, trying to protect mm-hmm. your young sensitive child from going to medicine because you think it will be a huge, and they've, especially if they've already had a suicide attempt or been right. having anxiety since they were five years old and you don't want them to go into medicine, you need to specifically say, because there's a high risk of anxiety and suicidality and this and that, and you already had a suicide attempt in high school and don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. The truth is so, so important. The whole truth and nothing but the truth mm-hmm. when, and to not have this, by the way, for people not to know, this is also very important. There is a risk associated with each specialty and anesthesia is number one and they die by suicide at two times the rate of the next highest specialty, which is surgery. And that's above emergency medicine, OBGYN and psychiatry. Psychiatry has the highest suicide rate out of any, out of any specialty that's Mm non-surgical because hearing all these terrible things all day long and they're maybe not getting to process like, and they're carrying around more than two bags of emotional, you know, carry on baggage. So it's really important. In summary, I would say one of the most important things for pre-medical students and medical students to have is true informed consent about what they're signing up for, because Mm -hmm. that is a principle of medicine that we give our patients informed consent of the risks and benefits of surgery, of taking medication, so they can make a choice about whether they want an intervention that could leave them limping or having pain or having this, that, or the other side effects, sexual dysfunction, you know what I mean? It is the choice of the person. And I think it is so important in the occupation of medicine that those people who enter this profession have true informed consent Mm -hmm. of the mental health risks, of the educational risks, you know, like what is, what is your life going to be like studying of the financial burden. There's a lot of levels of informed consent that need to be happening in a loving way with people, like in a true mentorship way, not in a way of scaring people, but just right. so that you know, the facts, because I feel like the most helpful thing is for a young person to opt in or out of this profession with true informed consent and mm-hmm. not with an idealized notion of what they think might happen. That is where disaster takes place. When you have a completely mismatched expectation mm-hmm. from what actually happens in your education and you feel thwarted, you know, in these various ways. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for the entire conversation. I know that we've been talking for quite a while and we really appreciate the time that you've given us here at the Medicus podcast for all of our listeners, as well as for us. Quick note, a lot of our listeners are pre-meds and undergraduates. And when you mentioned the Rolodex and putting out the Rolodex, I think a lot of our listeners may have never seen a Rolodex. <laughs> yeah, but, Rolodex, that's like a list of phone numbers that old people keep written down in a little spiral thing. Yeah. But where can our listeners go, uh, the listeners who might not have never seen a Rolodex, go to learn more about yourself and your work? I actually have a website. It's not on a Rolodex. It's idealmedicalcare.org. And I am available 24-7 while awake for anyone who needs to process scary feelings and needs a confidant and a guide. And so you can just contact me there on my contact page. I also have 
a ton of information that's inspiring on there. A lot, a lot of my keynotes, 10 years of material on my blog that might help you all archive, including a section on medical education. So. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Weibel. Uh, and it's just been a remarkable pleasure talking to you. And thank you so much for your work as well. I really do admire that you've taken taken a lot of this on for yourself. And I hope that we see a lot of kind of more positive, larger level changes um, moving forward as well. I think it's inevitable. Yes. I mean, I just started the conversation. I'm not the one that's going to sort of implement everything that's going to change create the culture change. But I think once you reach one person, you know, like systems are just made up of people. And when one person changes and they're a champion in a system, a whole system can change. So I'm very, very optimistic that we're out of the 160 years of darkness on this topic. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.